Now, the last couple of weeks, we've covered the Passover. And in one day, the Lord finally arranged it after the firstborn uh, of, of all the humans and animals died. The children of Israel just walked right out of Egypt. And, and it tells us the Egyptians were burying their kids and uh, burying their animals while the Hebrews are walking out of of Egypt. And it was a, a horrific picture. And uh, of course, the Passover, remember he said, anybody, Egyptians, the Hebrews, anybody who has faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you can kill a lamb, a perfect lamb without blood or, without blood or blemish, and, um, and take that lamb and uh, take the blood and put it on the door post of the house. And if you see how they would do that, they put a basin of blood at the bottom of the door. Then they take the brush, they go to the top, and then the blood, dip it again, go to the side, dip it again, go to the side. What's that make? A cross. And those that had the bloody cross on their door, the angel of death did not touch them. And so the Passover is a picture of the firstborn, if you would. The, the word firstborn in the Hebrew doesn't always mean the firstborn child. It literally means the preeminent one. And we see that in Colossians. It says that Jesus was the firstborn of God, the firstborn of the dead, uh, the firstborn of creation. And that's not saying he was literally born um, is talking about he's the preeminent one. And so the, you know, in John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. We, we still don't know what that word begotten means. <laughs> it's been debated the last 2,000 years since it was written. It's, it's, a, it's a word that, that just says it was God's best. God gave everything of value that he had that we might be saved. Isn't that amazing? God didn't give a part. God didn't give a percent. God didn't give, you know, some blind, lame angel, you know, who's limping around with the hump back, you know, saying, okay, you go down, you know, you're sort of worthless up here anyway. You go down and be the sacrifice and, and, and be the Messiah. No, God gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And so the Passover is a powerful picture of God's redemption. So now that they are, if you would, born again, <laughs> they're saved, they're, bringing, they're being brought out of slavery. I, I think the word there is redemption. They've been saved. We come to chapter 13 and we see how we are to respond to the Passover, to the sacrifice, Jesus, for us in a fuller sense. So the Lord spoke to Moses and said, consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both man and beast, what? It is mine. Okay. 
You're stepping out of Egypt. You're out of bondage. You're taking your first step into freedom. What do you need to do? You need to understand that I am first. Now, he's going to say, give the first of what you possess. But what does the Bible make clear? Naked we came to this world and what? Naked we go out. We don't possess anything. God, it says, uh, owns all the gold and all the silver. The Bible says God owns all the hills and all the cattle on all the hills. The earth is the Lord's and what? All that's in it. Okay, so in essence, whatever we have, whether it's a widow's mite or whether it's, you know, uh, like the Amazon guy this last week, we're $600 billion now. We need to understand everything's the Lord's, right? You're alive today because of God's grace. I mean, how many of us here are going, I've lived long enough to know I should be dead about 10 times over. <laughs> and I, I am alive because... God's grace. God's kept me alive. It's, it's amazing when we, we humbly realize that. And so I'm alive because God's allowed it. Everything I possess is because I'm alive because God's allowed it. And it's really 100% the Lord. So in essence, the Lord is saying to all of us, just like he said to the rich young ruler, give everything you have. Go sell it all. Just chuck it, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. In essence, that's what God's saying to all of us, right? We're giving everything to God. But he is saying, on a practical sense, that that wouldn't work because we have to live and eat and have money and get by. So I'm just asking you to, to show a symbol of that, that you give the first of everything to me. So let, let's just stop here and understand something. All religions say this. Be holy. Give yourself to God. And once God sees your heart of holiness and sincerity and surrender and sacrifice, then God might accept you. Wow, that guy's really being holy. That guy's really trying to be ethical. That guy's really just a, a giver, uh, you know, taking care of so many people and helping out the, the widow and the orphan. And wow, I think I'll reveal myself to that person. That's what all religions of the world do. Christianity is the opposite. God comes to us in our slavery, in our bondage, and says, hey, <laughs> I'm your God. By faith, if you'll just respond to my voice, obey me, listen to me, I can take you by faith out of that bondage, out of the claws of Satan. And here we are, born again, just like the thief on the cross. He never got a chance to take one step as a Christian. He died. He received the Lord on the cross, and then he died, and, and the Lord made it clear, today you're with me in paradise because salvation is not by works, it's a gift of God. But now we're not the thief on the cross. We get to take not just one step, we get to take a lot of steps into freedom. So what's the first thing we do? 
we say, God, it's all yours. Every second that I live, it's by you keeping me alive. Everything that ever comes through my hands, whether that's time, whether that's a gift, whether that's finances, whether that's a marriage or children, if I have an ability in the, you know, fix cars or be a plumber or be a doctor or a lawyer or whatever, Lord, it's yours. And God just says, Here, here's my heart. Just recognize that by giving me the first in all things. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 to 20, Paul is trying to get this across to the believers. He said, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? And listen, you are not your own. For you have been bought at a price, referring bought out of slavery. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So it's not just spiritually. Oh, yes, you know, I'm, I'm being spiritual. But with my body, I can do whatever I want with my body. No. It's our body and our spirit. Well, I'm, I'm worshiping God, but I'm not going to give up too much time. I'll worship God, but I'm not going to teach Sunday school. I'll worship God and I'll pray, and, and, but I don't want to give any of my money. You see, it's not either or. It's not spiritual. It's not body. It's body and spiritual. It's physical things and spiritual things. All things need to be dedicated to God. I don't think it can be better said than Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. We know this, right? Let's all say it together. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You may prove what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. This is the first step. Okay, I'm taking the first step into freedom. Now, now, here is a major mistake that we as Americans make, but Christians make it in Christianity. And that is what is the definition of freedom. You know, I think right now in America, we don't feel free. You know, when I grew up as a kid, you could jump on your bike at, at an eight-year-old kid at nine o'clock at night and ride around anywhere. There was no fear of getting kidnapped or shot or... It's now, now we're, we're afraid. So freedom in my book means you're not afraid, but yet we are afraid. I was talking to somebody the other day about you, you just never honk at anybody anymore because you don't know you honk and some guy pulls out a gun and starts shooting at you, you know, and you were just trying to tell him his gas cap is off, you know, and, uh, and he's shooting at you for it. We, we just don't know whether that guy is. And right now, our society is building a society that cannot succeed because it's set on addiction. My, my son, Nathan, lives in Washington. He goes, Dad, thank you that you didn't let us spend time playing all those video games because all my friends' marriages are dropping like flies because the guy can't stop playing the game. 
He goes to work. He comes. He says hi to the wife and kids. He's sort of bummed at even having to do that. Runs in, locks himself in the room or the basement, and and's playing till three in the morning. He's got to be at work at six, and is all exhausted all day. But then he comes home and he's all fired up, you know. To do, and it's going on seven days a week. It's addictive. Cell phones are addictive. They they they've proven it. The, you know, we're all. It's like building up attention until we want the, the release of dopamine by, you know, seeing if we have any text or emails or what's new on eBay. Of course, we've always had alcohol, but now pornography, it's, it's rampant. And they, they have said over and over again, factually, that the brain can get more addicted to pornography than any drug. Yes, it, it, it literally rewires the brain. And um, now we have marijuana. <laughs> Can anything good come out of this? It's, it's, it's ridiculous. Casinos everywhere, <laughs> gambling everywhere. And then all of the technology to keep us going. <laughs> You know, it's, it's, it's hard, you know. I'm, I'm sitting sometimes with people and trying to talk to them, and I just reach over and put my hand on their cell phone. I'm like, can you just stop for a minute? Well, I'm listening to everything you're saying. I'm like, you're, it's, what it is is we're around all these ADD people now. We, we're literally, if the kid's not born with it, he'll have it by five. You know? got the video games going and then he's got the you got the iPad and got the, the cell phone and you know he's sitting in the car watching the videos and then he gets out and you know people are drinking and smoking pot and and you got to understand that pot with the the touch DNA if you smoke marijuana in a house it's on the carpet it's on the furniture it's on everything and the kids will touch it it goes into their bloodstream and little kindergartners in Oregon and Washington right now are going to school and they have marijuana in their system. And so freedom is not being able to do whatever you want, whenever you want. If an alcoholic goes on a game show and they said, bing, 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 you just won a warehouse of all the different alcohol you can drink for free. And he goes and they open this giant door and far as the eye can see, you know, sort of Indiana Jones, the Ark of the Covenant, far as you can see is, you know, vodka and scotch and beer. And, and he's like, wow, I'm free now. I don't have to worry about trying to buy my alcohol. I got all the alcohol I can drink in my lifetime. Is that gonna make him free? So drinking all you want is not going to bring you freedom. It's actually going to bring you bondage. Do, do, do you understand? I mean, if a, if a guy says, bing, 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 you won the lottery. Now you can sit home 24 hours a day and play your, you know, your, your video game on, on the TV, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. <laughs> is that going to bring you freedom? I don't have to go to work. I don't have to do whatever I want. I'm a millionaire. I can just, you know, have things sent to me and ordered to me and, it's going to kill him, right? So freedom is not doing what you want. Freedom is doing what God wants, and it's not hard. That's what the Bible says true love is. True love is this, that God asks us to do something, and it's not a burden. That's what we do with our kids, right? 
Like, hey, you know, do the dishes, which means take five plates out of the sink and put them in the dishwasher. You know, oh, this is killing me. <laughs> you know, it's like takes them a minute and a half and take out the trash. Oh, my turn again. Oh, this isn't fair. I did it six months ago and I have to do it again. But what do you do? They, you make them do it and do it and do it and do it and do it. And then eventually, as they get older and mature, they can do it without it being an effort for them. They can do it without it being hard. And now, they're, now that they've experienced the freedom, they can do what they should easily without it being a burden. If you come in late, you have to sit on the front row. Sorry, that's the rule. Come on in. There you go. You got a, you got a Gap sweatshirt, and we got a Gap right there. <laughs> and uh, so freedom is God made us in his image, and the closer we can walk in his image, the more freedom we'll experience. So... If God is pure, the more you can walk in purity, the more free you're going to be. If God is love, the more you can walk lovingly, the more free you will be. But our bodies are sold under sin and abides things I don't want to do. I do things I do want to do. I don't do. Oh, wretched man that I am. What's the answer to this? Thanks be through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Passover has come. Now... We are born again. We're going to heaven. But now we're on earth. And so I want to do what? I want to now walk in the freedom. I'm not a slave. But guess what? I can be in slavery even not as a slave. I'm not a slave, but I'm in greater slavery than I was as a slave. Because I don't have somebody telling me what to do, but I'm telling myself the right thing to do, and I can't do it. And so the Lord says the first step is to realize you got to put God first. And, and, and it's everything is his. Give it all to him. But yet it's going to show up by giving him the first on a regular basis. It's nonstop. Oh, we just had another animal. The first one's the Lord's. Oh, we just had another son. Well, we give the, 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 the we'll see in a little bit here. That he's going to talk about how you, uh, you have some money and it's in the placement of killing your son. Um, although... <laughs> um, Sometimes it's the other way. But anyway, um, verse 3 here. Secondly, Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you went out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, for by strength of hand of the Lord brought you out of this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Now, the Lord arranged it in such a way that the women, as you remember, had to quickly take their dough and leave and they didn't have any leaven in their bread. So they all left Egypt with unleavened bread that they would later fix. And of course, this was all a part of God's plan. And he says there that um, no leaven bread shall be eaten to, to remember this day. Now, for sure, in the New Testament, leaven is a symbol of sin. Almost all the time in the Old Testament, not every time, by the way. Sometimes living in the Old Testament is not sin at all. But nevertheless, in this imagery, he's like 
get the leaven out. We see this plainly in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6 through 8. Paul explains this to us. By the way, we'll have the, the bigger green chairs in here next week, okay, that are more comfortable. Sorry about that. Some of the guys I can see are going, oh, this little plastic chair is not working for me. We have some green chairs back there. I see a couple of them. So anyway, um, it says here in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6 through 8, your glorifying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Now listen to verse 7. Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. This is what we're talking about here tonight, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice or wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So Paul here is, is saying the imagery of the Passover and then the day after Passover starts a seven-day feast of unleavened bread. And he's saying, so first of all, we give everything to the Lord first. We recognize God's the possessor of all things. The second thing is we realize that God called us out of bondage to no longer have leaven in our lives, right? He's called us now to be an unholy, to not be an unholy uh, leaven of malice and wickedness, but to have an unleavenedness of sincerity and truth. And in verse four, it says, on this day, you're going out in the mouth of, in the month of Abib. Now, Abib, it's the lunar calendar, which is March, April, somewhere in there. But sometimes people are a little bit confused because as you go later on in the Bible, it's no longer called Abib, but it's called Nisan. After the Babylonian exile, they were 70 years in Babylon taken captive. After that, it's no longer called Abib, it's called Nisan. So Abib or Nisan, but not Toyota, not Cadillac, <laughs> Abib or Nisan. And it's March, April, depending on the lunar calendar. Now. In that day, on the month of Abib, it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you a land flowing with milk and honey, that you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Notice, there's going to be celebration. Unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days. No leaven bread shall be seen among you, nor shall leaven be among you in all your quarters. So again here, he's making it clear. You're going to have Passover. The day after Passover, there's no leaven anywhere. So if you think about it, you got to start trying to get it out of the house before Passover because it is a Sabbath rest time. But when you wake up the morning after the Passover, there's no leaven in the house for seven days. But at the end of seven days, there's a feast, a feast that we've had no leaven in our house. <laughs> Again, seven is the number of completion. Eight is the number of new beginnings, right? Seven days in a week, the eighth day is the new beginning. Seven notes on a scale, the eighth note starts a new scale into infinity, both directions. It's pretty amazing. So in essence, he's saying, 
No leaven in our life until God completes this work in us. And so there's two things we need to understand. When we say, Lord Jesus, forgive me, I'm a sinner, be the Lord of my life, and we surrender our life to Christ. At that moment, we are redeemed. We have redemption. But now we need to start realizing God is working in us something different, which is sanctification. So if I'm a Christian, I'm trying to walk as a Christian, but I'm sinning, I'm struggling with sin, which we all do until we're with the Lord. It's not that I need to get redeemed again. No, you just get redeemed once. But what do I need to be? I need to rededicate myself unto sanctification. In 1 Thessalonians 4, let's look at this. In verses 1 through 8, it says, Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord that you should abound more and more, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. Now, verse 2. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Well, I didn't think there was any commandments. Yeah, sure there are. There, there are clear things, principles that we live by so we're not in bondage again. Even though we're out of Egypt, we're still in bondage. We don't want that. And in verse 3 now, this is a clear statement. For this is the will of God, what? Your sanctification. That you should abstain from sexual immorality. A big deal in the Roman Empire and a big deal in our empire. That each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Not a passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one should take an advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter. Because the Lord's avenger of all such as we forewarned you and testified. So somebody says, ah, it doesn't matter if you're fornicating. Ah, it doesn't matter if you're looking at porn. Ah, it doesn't matter if you're committing adultery. No big deal. Just as long as you, you know, show up to church and pray and sing and tithe and love the Lord, you know, it doesn't matter that you're struggling with that stuff. No big deal. No. Somebody tells you that, they are in trouble with God. Don't let anybody deceive you in this matter. In verse 7, for God did not call us to uncleanness, but what? In holiness. Therefore, he rejects this, does not reject man, but God who also has given us his Holy Spirit. So like this sermon, I'm putting pressure on you by declaring the word of God to you. Hopefully I'm not declaring too many words of Brian, but you're gonna feel that tension like the tightening of a string on a guitar to try to get you in tune. And sometimes you can go, ah, it makes me upset because I go to church and I'm convicted and there's tension and, 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 and I feel myself being cleansed, but it hurts. And you just say, man, I don't want that. Well, we have to have that, right? In the physical realm, if we don't challenge our body, all our muscles will atrophy, right? In a marriage, if you're not trying to walk in a way to please your spouse and to serve them, you'll start becoming roommates and then irritable roommates and then you don't want to be roommates anymore. You got to work to keep that romance and that love in the marriage, right? There's got to be that tension. And so you're not, even though man's the one declaring you the word of God, putting pressure on you, you're not rejecting what I have to say. I didn't make up the concept of whatever. 
tithing or walking holy. Well, that's brains. You know, I'm just telling you what the Bible says. And so you're ultimately rejecting God. And so notice here in, in, in 1 Thessalonians 4, it's all on you. This is the will of God that you understand your body, that you understand that you need to keep your body in sanctification and in honor. Take the leaven out. Everywhere you can, get rid of the leaven. But here's the truth. 1 Thessalonians 5, the very next chapter, going to talk on the very same subject, but listen to it this time in 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, entirely, perfectly. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Wow. Get the leaven out. Okay, Lord. Man, if you get the leaven out, there's going to be a feast. If you come to the seventh day, the day of completion, and, and you've done everything you can to get the leaven out, you're going to be so rejoicing. I'll be rejoicing. There's going to be this, this celebration. As Peter says in, in 2 Peter 1, he says there's going to be an abundant entry into the kingdom. Jude said there's going to be some that are shrinking away in shame at the coming of Christ. He's still going to snatch them to heaven, but they're going to be hating the very garments they're wearing because they have the stench of their sin as God's taking them out of this body and giving them a brand new body, rapturing them. But yet they're grieved and God's grieved and and and. It's, it's not an abundant entry. But you see, man, I'm trying so hard. But it seems like the harder I try, the, 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 I do worse. Anybody ever feel that way? It's like, man, I just, I just feel like I'm, I, it just, the more I concentrate on trying not to sin, it seems like the more I do sin. You know, that's it. That's us. Oh, wretched man I am. Who will save me from this body of death? And so we come and we go, God, I believe, but help my unbelief. God, I want to obey with everything in me, but help my lack of obedience. And what does God say in 1 Thessalonians 5? Hey, I called you out of Egypt, and what did I say to you? I'm getting you to the promised land. It's me. I didn't say, okay, I got you out of Egypt, now get yourself to the promised land. See, that's all religions again. All religions now say, be holier, be purer, pray more, give more, serve more, read the Bible more, witness more. And, and it's like, yes, yes, all those things are true, but you're, you're not going to be really right with God and God sort of ticked at you if you're not getting there. And that's like, no, no, no. Now we're trying to perfect in our flesh that which God begun by the Spirit. Now, no, see, it's a joyful thing. We try to get all the leaven out, but you know what happens often when you try to get all the leaven out of every quarter? Do you think you succeed? Do you, do you, how many times do you think Jews thought they got every bit of leaven out of the entire house? But they didn't. But they celebrated as if they did because they tried. They just didn't know that there was some leaven left in a bowl up in a cupboard that they didn't check. You see, it's not about 
focusing on ourselves to be holy, to be accepted by God, to be righteous so I can be more in the higher echelon of, of believers. No, it's, it's, it's a heart of going, God, I want to bless you. I want to worship you. You've set me free from bondage that I could be in freedom. So for you, God, I want to be in harmony, walking even as you walk. Not so I can be a Pharisee saying, I got my act together. Now you get your act together. Yes, it was hard, not to lust, but I conquered that one 10 years ago. That's, that's ridiculous. <laughs> but what is God saying here? He who began that good work he is going to complete it. God himself is going to sanctify you entirely, faithful as you called you, and he is going to do it. And so what do we do? Why, why do we do this then? He tells us why. He says here in verse 8, why are you doing this unleavened bread thing? So you shall tell what? Your son in that day saying, this is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came up from Egypt. Now, you couldn't you just say, hey, everybody, once a year, sit down and tell them the story. Why do we need to go through this elaborate thing of unleavened bread and getting rid of it and having a feast and all of these things? Because, guys, this is always the case. Most of what our kids are going to grow into as adults is not what they were taught but what they were caught, right? Gail Irwin used to always say, I taught my kids how to eat properly, but unfortunately, they still eat like me. And, uh, and so the fact is, is, is dads, you need to step up and show with a childish heart of faith, simple obedience. I'm in looking in the cupboard. Dad, what are you doing in the cupboard? Son, getting all the leaven out. What are you doing up there? I'm getting, trying to find the unleavened. Let's go look under the bed. They would make a, it was like a fun thing. The parents would go and hide leaven throughout the house, put it under the kid's pillow and put it in their drawer and, and put it under the chair. And it was sort of fun, you know, sort of like an Easter egg hunt, you know, go find the leaven. And it was a fun thing and everybody would participate. Because you see, the tendency of man, the male of the species, is, is to not live. Oh, we'll tell them. Yeah, we'll sit down at the table. Oh, you know, I don't need to read that Bible. I've known it since I was a kid. Let me tell you what the Bible says. Oh, I don't think it says that, Dad. Of course it does. Shut up, kid. Yes, it does. You know? No. The, 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 what God needs is guys who will live it. Not dads who will drop their kids off at church and they go golfing. Not dads who will tell them they're a Christian but, but never go to church, never lift their hands, never clap their hands, never truly give the first of everything to God. No, they, what they need to do is they need to see it in their life. And then what they say is a compliment to that. But understand, if you're telling it and not doing it, when kids hit junior high, all of a sudden they get these little hypocritic tennis. Dad, but you told me that. Why are you doing that? Be quiet. I'm your dad. Do what I say. Don't know what I do. They can tell. And, and they, they, within a, a year, say, oh, I see. This is, this is something that kids do 
and dads tell their kids to do, but you don't really have to do it. You just got to be, know it well enough to tell your kids someday to do it. But then as soon as you become an adult, which I'm 14, I am now, um, I don't have to do it anymore. God didn't want that to happen. We're going to see later on, he says, man, while you're sitting down, while you're walking along the way, wherever you go, you continue to teach your kids. And then he goes on to say in verse 9, it shall be a sign to you on your hand. This is going to all be elaborated later on. But on the back of the hand, as a memorial, between the eyes, and the law shall be in your mouth. So on the back of your hand, between your eyes, and in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. So this isn't something you can just tell them. It's something you're showing. Now, how the Jews interpreted this is as a phylactery. Have you ever seen that where they have a box, a leather box, and they wrap it up on you, and then they have it around their head, and they have a big box? And, of course, Jesus talks about that. You guys think you're so holy because you make this giant box, you know, the size of a basketball between your eyes going, wow, man, that guy's really holy. See the size of his phylactery between his eyes? Another guy will have a big old giant one on the back of his hand. Wow, you see that? And... It doesn't say that's what the Lord meant here, but, he, you know, it, it's cool that they are trying to honor God, but yet they're trying to do that in a place of living righteously just to present themselves showing righteousness, not truly living it. But anyway, he says, you shall therefore keep this ordinance in its season from year to year, and it shall be when the Lord brings you out of the land of Canaanites, he swore to you, your fathers, to give to you. Now in verse 12, that you shall set apart to the Lord all that opens the womb that is in every firstborn that comes from an animal. So now he's going back to those first couple of verses we looked at. Now he's going to elaborate more. He says that... Uh, you're to give the firstborn that comes out from the animal which you have. The male shall be the Lord's. And every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. And if you will not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. And all the firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. Now, again, this is going to go into much more detail when we get into Exodus and Leviticus ex explaining this in more detail. But... He basically is going to tell them later on, there's a lot of other unclean animals. God doesn't want sacrifice to him. So, you know, can we sacrifice a camel? Uh, no, God's going to say, no, later on, if their hoofs are like this, they're unclean, you can't sacrifice them. You, you have to either redeem them with the lamb or you kill them. And you say, well, well, what a waste. I think we need to stop and realize God's making a serious point here. He, he's saying you're going to either kill that animal, it's going to just be nobody's. It's not going to be yours, though. Understand, in this equation, it will not be for you to use. Read, read Habakkuk. It talks about that, where he says, plainly, you can drink, you're going to be thirsty, you can eat, you're going to be hungry. I'm not going to allow you to take your tithe and use it on something else. I, I won't let it. I'll, I'll kill it. I'll poke a hole in your bag, and it'll drain out. You, you, I, you're, it's never, it was always mine. The tithe is the Lord's. You look at a check of $100, $100 of yours was, it was never yours to begin with, right? It always was $90. And then even that $90, there's an offering of that as well. And so some people say, okay, I need to redeem a donkey. Um, and then also I need to redeem my child. And so some dads are asking, well, what if my child is a donkey? 
can I break his neck? No. And then the wives are saying, well, what if my husband is a donkey? <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't suggest that either. But, uh, you know, don't spiritualize this too much, okay? Well, it shall be when your sons ask you in the time to come, saying, what is this that you shall say to him? By strength of the hand of the Lord has brought us out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And it came to pass when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go, that the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of the beast. Therefore sacrifice, Lord, all the males that opened the womb, but all the firstborn of the sons I redeem. And it shall be a sign on your hand and on your frontlets between your eyes. By the strength of hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. So somehow they were to have a sign on the back of their hand and their frontlets. I don't know if it was the phylacteries as they eventually did, but he's making it clear here. Interesting, talking about the same exact thing in Exodus 34, verse 19 and 20, he repeats it, how of all the livestock and the sheep and everything that's clean, uh, be, that's the Lord's to be sacrificed to the Lord, but of the donkey and other unclean animals, he says the same thing, but then he ends it in Exodus 34, verse 20, none of you shall appear before me empty-handed. It's interesting. That, well, I, I, I did tell him about the story, but I didn't tell him why I was sacrificing the firstborn to you. Because this year, God, I usually am counting on 10 sheep, and I only had six. So, you know, as much as I want, you know, and I've had 10 sheep, no problem, you got one of them. But now that I, you know, this is going to be a lean year, I thought, man, I just, you know, all I do is kill it and burn it, and, and it's just such a waste. And, and God is saying, you know what? No. It's not going to be spiritual only or physical only. God is not the Godfather. <laughs> like, hey, don't come empty-handed, you know. He's God, our Father. The giving is not about raising money. The earth is Lord and all that's in it. Remember, he rained manna out of heaven, water out of a rock. I love that story when Peter's going, Lord, we got to pay our temple taxes. And Jesus said, ah, go fishing, Peter. Well, what do you mean? Well, just open up the first fish you catch. Boom, he catches a fish, and there is this giant coin, enough to pay Jesus and Peter's taxes. I mean, wasn't that so simple? I mean, God knows all of the coins and all the fishes. God knows where every buried treasure is. I mean, it's not a hard thing for God to, to provide. It's not, he's not trying to raise money. He's trying to raise children. And he's saying that you, your heart won't be in a place of worship if you come empty-handed. If you try, as we studied on Sunday morning, if you try to worship God with that which costs you nothing, it won't work. And I added some verses there. But finishing up here in verse 17. So it came to pass when Pharaoh had let the people go that God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near, about 110 miles. They estimate this large of a crowd, 600,000 men plus women and children, probably somewhere between 2 and 3 million people, about 10 miles a day would have been max. So 110 miles, 10 miles a day, 11-day journey. And not only that, it was a smooth road. Not only that, there was plenty of water. Not only that, there were plenty of towns with food and, 
and everything. It was, it was a straight shot and so easy. But God said, I didn't do that. God said, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. And you say, I don't know if that happened. It happens next chapter. Um, they're trying to get out of Egypt and they're trapped and they're freaking out. So God led the people around by the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea and the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. So they're not running, screaming, run, run, run for your life. No, it was all very slow and orderly. It was, there was nothing frantic about it. God was the deliverer. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him for he had placed the children of Israel under a solemn oath, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones. Uh, from here with you. I know God's going to establish this in the promised land, and I want to go with you, even though I'll be dead. Take me with you. And they took their journey from Sukkoth, which simply means tabernacle, uh, little tents they made, and camped in Etham on the edge of the wilderness. In Deuteronomy 8, verse 2 and 3, it says this, you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you. He allowed you to hunger. He fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. So God said, I always planned on it being a 40-year journey in the wilderness. Lord, that's a straight shot, 110 miles. It would be such a smooth path if you just let us go straight there. Nope, nope. I, you know what? It's not about just getting there. It's about how you get there. And when you get there, I need you to have a humble heart. I need you to have hungered and I feed you. I needed you to be thirsty in the wilderness and no other provisions except my hand and you drank from me. I needed you to walk and just day in and day out, you go gather the manna. You get enough just for today. Remember, they'll try to gather the manna, enough for the next day, and it turns into worms. And they're like, oh, you can't keep it the next day. But on the sixth day, God said, take twice as much because there'll be some on the seventh day for you because that's the day of rest. But they said, no, we already tried that. It stinks. And they woke up on the seventh day going, there's no manna. Ah, what happened? God said, collect it on the day before. Well, we tried that. On the first day, it stunk, I know, but it won't, it won't go bad on the sixth day. It'll be fine. It won't work any other day of the week, but it'll work on that day. Well, how can that be? Because it's spiritual. And he brought them first thing in the morning while it was still damp out to go collect the manna. Every man was to collect enough for his own family for the day. And then the next day, and the next day. They didn't have to focus on anything else except collecting the manna and eating it through the day. So you would just learn the routine. Morning by morning, quicken your ear to hear as a disciple from what the Lord has. And I love this tender word here. And the Lord went out before them by day in the pillar of cloud and led them in the way and by the pillar of fire to give them light as though to go by the day and night. And he did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. I, I love this. They're out in the middle of the wilderness, 120 degrees sometimes, but not for them. There is a pillar of cloud. And then, of course, the desert gets freezing at night, but not for them. 
there's a fire. So by day, they weren't smote by the heavy uh, hand of the wilderness. And by night, they weren't frozen by the, the difficulty of the desert. But just think how tender that is. A little nightlight <laughs> so they don't have to fear. Uh, 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 the presence of God in the day right there. I can almost touch it. God's with us. I mean, just how precious that is. So maybe you're here going, man, I, I can't believe everything's this hard. I had a young man just last week ask me, well, first of all, I ended up running into a tree, $5,000 damage in my car, insurance, I had to pay a $1,000 copay. And then the tires went bad, so I had to get new tires. And then, and then, and then, you know, what's going on, man? I'm living for God, I'm serving God, why is it so hard? And I'm like, that's life. That's life. I, I, I wish I could say that everybody doesn't go through it, but we all go through it. And when it rains, it pours, right? But what does it do? It humbles our heart. And I wish I just, I mean, if I had the ability, I just would have said, I'll, here, here's a check. <laughs> hey, here, let me fix your car for you. Hey, let me, you know, but it, it doesn't work that way, huh? You just, you have to just stand back and watch them get humbled and humbles you as you watch that. You hurt for them, probably more than they're hurting. And so it's not just them going through it, it's everybody watching them go through it. And we just say, God, you're so smart. Because we're so prideful. Remember the story of Gideon? He had 30,000, God took him down 10,000 against hundreds of thousands of Midianites. And then finally he takes him down to 300 men. And God said, I had to bring you down to 300 because 301, you had had pride in your heart and said, look what I did. We went out and conquered, you know, hundreds of thousands of Midianites with, with 301 guys. Ooh, you know, we're bad. But when I brought, brought you down to 300 and you didn't even have enough to, to even take on a portion of them, you knew it was me and you, you didn't have a pride in your heart. That's us, isn't it? We so simply feel a little bit confident, we stop praying. Feel a little bit confident, we quit seeking the Lord. And uh, God, just humble our hearts and help us to know, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Thank you for your word here this night, Lord. And as we continue on line upon line, precept upon precept, keep speaking to us, Lord, to know your heart, to know your mind. Let every one of us here could walk in redemption, if you're here tonight and you're not born again, you can just cry out and say, God, forgive me. I can't pay for my sins, but Jesus, you did. On the cross, you bled and died and rose again that I could have a free gift of redemption. And if you're here tonight and you've just been bummed out and struggling, Satan's condemning you and you're condemning yourself and it's like, man, this is never gonna happen, no. He who started that good work, he's going to complete it. God is going to sanctify you entirely, spirit, soul, and body. Faith is who calls you, and he will do it. Just say, Lord, I, I'm going to start taking all the unloving out. <laughs> I know I'll struggle with sin till the day I die, but, Lord, I, I want to take on and realize this is your will, that I would walk in sanctification, and I can't, but you're going to give me the power to do so. So I lay it before you and just wash us all tonight in the water of your word in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen.